Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition, taking a deep dive into the government's latest proposals to change the system of securing contributions from developers towards infrastructure and affordable housing. We'll also be exploring our research into which planning consultancies employ the most female planners. But before we get into that, here are the key news stories from the past seven days. First, Wellin Hatfield Borough Council is facing a court challenge after it cancelled a planning refusal following complaints from the applicants that a councillor was not paying attention or asleep during the committee meeting at which the scheme was determined. Next, an inspector has dismissed an appeal against Mid-Suffolk District Council's refusal of 279 homes on an unallocated greenfield site on flood risk grounds and ordered the developer to pay the cost of the authority's wasted expense after finding that their bid had no reasonable chance of succeeding. Elsewhere, the High Court has overturned an inspector's decision to refuse prior approval for a flat on the single ground that he could not be certain that residents would be afforded adequate natural light Many thanks, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Okay, so now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. John, will you be joining me? Not this week, I'm afraid. Well, sorry to hear it, but I'll grab my reading glasses and head in. Okay, best of luck. Well, here I am again in the cavern in which all new planning information gathers. I'm going to head over to a particularly grim corner of the chamber which has been set aside for shelves and shelves of documentation on the infrastructure levy. The government's proposed new system for securing contributions from developers towards the cost of infrastructure and affordable housing. Reassuringly, I can see that our special correspondent, Joey Gardner, is already there. Joey, hello. Hello, Richard. Sorry, let me just uh, move this mound of paper away so I can see you properly. Yes, the cries of the others examining it are a little bit distracting, but we need to focus. Just remind us, broadly, how would this new infrastructure levy that the government is proposing, how would it change the existing system of collecting developer contributions? Well, it would be a major uh, substantial change to the current system, Currently, the planning system gets contributions from developers via two systems, effectively, the Section 106 agreement and the community infrastructure levy. Section 106 agreements are kind of bespoke individual negotiations made on an application by application basis, and the community infrastructure levy is something which local authorities set up on an authority-by-authority basis. It's voluntary for them to do so, and it is levied on a pounds per square foot of development basis. This would change the system entirely by largely, or be it not entirely, sweeping away both of those, those systems with a mandatory levy, All local authorities would have to introduce an infrastructure levy. They'd be able to set local rates depending on their area and they would be levied on the gross development value of the developments in question or the planning permissions in question. 
Okay, so um, quite a major change. What's the government's rationale for introducing it? Well, obviously, this is a question that has gone back and forth endlessly over time. How how best to secure some value from the value created by the grant of planning permission and how to secure money for local infrastructure from that value that the developers and landowners accrue by the grant of planning permission. And the government's feeling, and indeed many people in the development industry as feeling likewise has been that really endless time and energy has been expended over many years in negotiating these individual bespoke Section 106 agreements and bespoke um, planning contributions. And that if you could find a way to set a levy that gave applicants certainty that enabled them to press ahead with a development or with an application and knowing in advance what their obligations were going to be and without having to embark on protracted negotiations, that that would really be better for everyone, both for for the authority and for the um, developer in in the first place. The government has promised all along that it would introduce such a system, which which it's called the infrastructure levy, in a way that it would raise at least as much by way of developer contributions as the existing system. Okay. So they feel they've got a, at the moment, there's a rather a complex system that's rather time-consuming. Very time-consuming, I would say, is, would be their, their principal rationale, yeah. Do people feel that they've succeeded in, with these latest details that they've unveiled or the latest proposals that they've unveiled, do people feel that they've succeeded in creating a template for a simpler system? Well, here's the rub, really, because I don't think people do. I mean, the government still says so. In the consultation itself, it says it's the system is going to create a fairer and simpler system of developer contributions. But the reaction from people is that what they've created looks substantially more complex potential or, or or certainly at least as complex as what we've what we've already got okay and can you explain what is it that's causing that complexity well i mean there's there's probably too many factors to talk about it now and part of the problem is that i think people feel that there are just so many questions still to be answered that they that they just don't really have answers to at the moment but i think really at the at the root of it is I think this idea that the government wanted or was attracted by this this simple idea that that it could make a simple system with a flat rate that got you out of the idea of of having to have bespoke negotiations every time that you wanted to get a um, developer contribution, but quickly realised when it went down this road, and the the initial proposal was for a a simple, flat, national rate. That's what it talked about in 2020. But the development community quickly came back and said, well, if you did that, you would get an enormous array of perverse outcomes from that. You would hugely incentivise the development of greenfield sites and those those sites where the viability is is already much, much, much better. You need to take account of of all these different development 
factors if you want to introduce a levy. Otherwise, you're just going to incentivize certain forms of development. So the government, to its credit, has taken appears to have taken a lot of these arguments on board. But in order to avoid all these perverse incentives, it's ended up at every stage adding more and more complexity. So from from starting out with the initial proposal being a national flat rate, a single national flat rate, we've now got the ultimate design that's being consulted on here is for locally set rates, for so a, a separate rate for every local authority in the land. But then each local authority will also have the ability to not only set its own rate, but set differential rates for brownfield and greenfield land for residential and commercial development. And within all those distinctions for conversion developments, for extensions, for demolitions and rebuild, as well as straight straight building projects. And these different rates could also interact on the same site. So you could be charging different levy rates within the same developments for different proportions of portions of the same development. So there's, a, there's suddenly a huge amount of complexity just in the in the calculation or the understanding of what people are going to pay in the first place. So there's that. That's, I think, at the core of it. But there's also the fact that the government wants to, and I think this is to make sure that the development industry is paying as, as much contribution as possible. The idea of levying the infrastructure levy on gross development value rather than on floor space, which has been welcomed in in many areas. But this, of course, requires developers and local planning authorities to estimate in advance what the gross development value is likely to be in order to calculate what the liability for the levy is likely to be to make the payment and then correct that when that gross development value is actually known at the point at which the um, the sale of the scheme is made. And there are various kind of calculations and ways of doing this cal- uh, consulted on. But again, an enormous amount of complexity. And uh, assuming a, a valuation expertise within local authorities that really just doesn't exist at this point. And this is before you even get on to talking about the delivery of the infrastructure itself, which suddenly becomes the responsibility of a local authority under this scheme, rather than the responsibility of the developer. So a huge amount of additional complexity and a huge amount of questions. I guess the process of of trying to kind of produce a formula which um, sets an appropriate level of contribution for each scheme, depending on a, a whole variety of different factors, I suppose as soon as you start doing that, you hit the complexities which actually make those Section 106 negotiations long and complicated and and, and and really explain why, I guess, of course, there may be elements of just sort of tough negotiation that explain why Section 106 talks, you know, can go on forever. But there is also the fact that these um, there are genuinely complex interactions to consider when, when working out how much you know, really should be contributed by by one of these schemes. Indeed. And and I suppose, you you know, one might be tempted to ask as to whether it is really within, and this is a 
a genuine question, you know, the extent to which it is within a local authority's skill set or whether it, certainly whether it will be within all local authority skill sets down to the smallest local authority skill sets to make those calls about where exactly to draw that line. They, you know, it's going to be a very, very kind of ticklish calculation to make to, to draw that line between viability and, you know, wh- where exactly you're putting that levy at to ensure you're getting the maximum possible contribution, but you're not suddenly making all development impossible to carry out in your local authority area because it's just simply unviable. And these are very, very difficult calls to make and you're going to have to be getting very good advice and making, you know, really quite difficult calls on this. And this is before we've even talked about affordable housing. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned affordable housing. There is this new right to require a level of on-site affordable housing contribution it proposed. Is that? Can you tell us a bit about that? So the right to require is the name for the uh, right that a local authority will have under the proposed system, that a proportion of the levy that they've set should be paid by the developer as a subsidy towards delivering on-site affordable housing, i.e. the applicant, the developer that that has the permission, will build on-site affordable housing and it will be taken that that will be a proportion effectively of the delivery of the levy in kind because the subsidy that that affordable housing requires will be a proportion of their levy payment. I mean, it does go into some detail on this, but what is still, despite reading through this, what it, it remains unclear to me is how, if I'm within a local authority, how I really get from where I am currently, where I can require that I have a policy that, say, 30 or 40% of all the homes on a site are delivered as affordable housing, and I can select the tenures of that, how I get from that to equivalent policy under the right to require, because this is not what the right to require is. It's not saying a proportion of the homes on a site are affordable housing. It's talking about the proportion of the levy fee being paid towards an affordable housing subsidy. So that's a di- that's a different thing. So in terms of how you actually then go about understanding how many homes specifically that will that will deliver and as a local authority how your right to require policy will translate into a certain number of homes again that seems to me to be an enormously complex calculation and 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 again, something that's really bound up in valuations and, and is likely to change as the actual outturn of a development happens as opposed to the predicted gross development value of a development as well. And it's not quite clear how that adjustment will be accounted for. So you've already talked about a couple of the sort of new requirements that this system would make of local authorities and, and applicants, um, you know, for instance forecasting gross development value. Is there anything else in terms of new requirements uh, that applicants and authorities need to be aware of? 
I mean, there's lots of different things. Probably the principal things for local authorities is that they will take on the delivery of infrastructure that is paid for by levy receipts. And in order to do this, they will have to set out prior to taking on the ability to charge the levy, they will have to draw up an infrastructure delivery strategy, which they will be examined on. I think long term, the plan would be to do this at the same time as the local authority would do a local plan. And obviously, that again, that's a new that's a new skill set for a local authority. You know, there's quite a bit of both local authority and developer concern around that, around how easy that will be to do. Because not not least because it will require local authorities to borrow money in advance. The idea is that local authorities would likely borrow from the Public Works Loan Board in advance of the receipt of levy monies from from developers so that they could fund infrastructure necessary to support development in advance and then get that money back as and when the developments happen. Not entirely clear, I have to say, to me, what happens if a local authority borrows from the Public Works Loan Board to fund some infrastructure on the basis of a scheme going forward which then gets put on hold viability reasons and or market reasons and the, then the developer never pays the levy you know what if that levy money never ends up coming into the local authority's coffers you know what actually happens there there are lots of questions there's also a difference between integral infrastructure which can be delivered on or should be delivered on site by the developer itself as opposed to wider infrastructure named under these infrastructure delivery strategies which should be delivered by the local authority and there's a lot of complexity as to which is comes under uh, you know under the auspices of which really so they again a lot of outstanding questions so what do people think is going to be the impact of all this on affordable housing provision well, the government has repeatedly said that, that the new system will deliver at least as much on affordable housing as the current system. The problem is no one can see anything in the way the system is described at the moment that actually guarantees that. So the answer is really it's unknown. And in fact, many suspect it might actually deliver the opposite. But the short answer is the jury's out on that. Okay. You've talked about the degree of complexity, and it it does sound highly complex. Is there any possibility that this will never be implemented? Well, there's a huge amount that needs to get done before it can be implemented. This consultation's got to get finished. The the levelling up and regeneration bill has got to get enacted. There needs to be a a further consultation and then production of regulations, then they have to introduce pilots with infrastructure delivery strategies. I think the the general estimation is that probably the first pilots would might be ready to go by around 2025. So that's that's already after the next election. And there's loads more detail required on lots of the information. So Given that the Labour Party is currently saying it's opposed to taking this on and the outcome of, you know, I don't think it's controversial to say that the outcome of the next general election we'd like to see next year is uncertain, 
then, you know, yes, there has to be some uncertainty about whether this is going to be taken forward. I mean, assuming uh, the current government does win the next election, even given that, uh, they've said it's a 10-year implementation period, so a really, really long test-and-learn process is what they've called it. I think even in that scenario, people are seeing it as unsure whether this gets taken forward because it depends how the pilots go and there, there would be a, you know, a further general election in that period as well. Well, thank you very much, Joey. Really interesting. I'm sorry to leave you in this particularly um, dank and dark uh, corner of, uh, of Room 106, but thank you for exploring it and we'll see you in Room 106 again soon. Thanks, Richard. Okay, so I'm moving over to another part of the chamber, which is another rather large cavern in which the responses to the planning consultancy market report are kept. And I think there's somebody there who's been looking at what those responses tell us about the role and profile of women in the UK planning consultancy market. And it's our regular correspondent, Josephine Smith. Joe, hello. Hello, Richard. Very nice to see you in Room 106 for the first time. Can I ask you just to, to start by telling us a bit about what the survey tells us about the proportion of planners working for consultancies that are female? The headline figure for the latest survey is that 40.1% of planners working in consultancy are female. Okay, and what about um, at director or partner level? The share of female directors or partners stands at 22.2% in the latest survey. Okay, that's quite a marked difference. Are these proportions changing, and and if so, how? For both groups, there's been an increase, but that growth has been marginal. For female planners, the share has risen from 39.6% in 2020 to 39.9% in 2021. So for the latest survey, the share has just broken the 40% barrier at 40.1%. At director level, we saw the share of female directors rise from 20% to 22.1% from 2020 to 2021. But for this latest survey, the figure has risen to just 22.2%. Okay, so a fractional increase this year, slightly bigger increase over the three years. What about Compared to the profession as a whole, is there a difference between the consultancy sector and the profession as a whole, or is it very much the same? For female planners in general, our figure of 40.1% is almost in line with the RTPI's figure of 40.2% at the end of 2022. Okay, clearly um, great similarity between the uh, representation in uh, in the profession as a whole and representation in the consultancy sector. How many firms reported planner employees who do not define themselves as either female or male? Two planner directors and one chartered planner define themselves as other. So, which are the medium-sized or large firms with the highest proportion of women in the workforce? If we look at gender parity or better, six firms achieved that in the 2021 survey. This time round, seven firms recorded gender parity or better. They are Deloitte, Carney Sweeney, Emery Planning... LUC, Arup, SLR Consulting and Bell Cornwall. OK, and what approaches or policies do these firms credit with helping them attract high proportions of female planners? 
I think the approaches or policies broadly fall into two groups. Firstly, there are the measures that support women and families across both the home and the workplace. These are things like flexible working to allow for school holiday commitments, part-time working and return-to-work policies. Secondly, you have the approaches and policies that drive equality of opportunity within the workplace itself, like mentoring and allyship schemes, menopause policies, gender balance shortlists and targets of female representation on promotion panels and also things like inclusive training. At which firms is the proportion of planning directors that are female highest? Two firms have at least 50% female directors. That's actually one fewer than in the previous year. Both Atkins and David Locke Associates recorded 50% female directors. Three firms had between 40 and 50%. Arup recorded 44.4%, Planning Potential 42.9% and LUC was on 40%. And again, what approaches or policies, if any, do these firms credit with helping them achieve a high proportion of female planner directors? A number of companies are nurturing talent through the use of approaches like mentoring and coaching. James Fennell of Litchfields spoke of colleagues helping others to follow in their footsteps. Balanced and diverse promotion panels are also being adopted to ensure that the pool of talent that directors and partners are drawn from is as diverse as possible. And then flexible working practices and family-friendly policies are also proving valuable in enabling career trajectories to be maintained alongside family life. Okay, and how do these firms, do they talk about how they balance the aim of ensuring that there is equal opportunities for women with being seen to create an absolute level playing field in terms of who they recruit, who they promote, etc., etc.? Yes, a lot of respondents to the survey highlighted that this was not about putting women first. This is not about giving women a leg up, but this is about creating a level playing field for all, equality of opportunity. More generally, what about your sort of overall conclusions from the survey? What did you, what did you come away learning from it? It shows there's still more work to do, particularly in ensuring women have a place at the top table in consultancy. But it's encouraging to see the range of initiatives coming forward now, from RTPI's Change Action Plan, to women in planning's mentoring and events, to the host of actions within individual companies, from schools outreach to flexible working. The survey shows women are responding to initiatives and that policies are driving change. Although, as Victoria Hills, chief executive of the RTPI, has said, the gender balance of RTPI's membership and so the profession is shifting gradually. Okay, thank you very much, Joe. Uh, that's all really interesting stuff. Your full report is on planningresource.co.uk, so listeners can read more about it all there. Very nice to see you in Room 106. I hope it hasn't been too traumatic an experience for you, and uh, look forward to seeing you in Room 106 again soon. Thank you, Richard. Great, that's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. 
Keep your eye out for Net Zero Connect, which is taking place in Birmingham in June and has the support of, uh, of, of planning, and also the National Planning Summit taking place before that in May in London. Our thanks to producers Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening.